he wanted me to see his gin palace. And I thought gin palace, well, I, I had visions of like a palace that made gin, but we went to Girvan, Scotland, and it was literally a garage with these two ancient stills, a Carter and a Bennett still. Um, and they were, they were from the 1840s. At least one of them was. Um, and I just thought to myself instantly, like, oh, wow, look, that looks like Jules Verne, like Captain Nemo stuff, right? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I'm Chris Laveau, and uh, I am I'm loving right now that so often when I'm trying to put together a little recap of these episodes, that I'm just like, what do I even say about this person or this guest? Uh, my guest today is Steve Grass. He is the founder of an agency, and I'm sure that he would deplore that I'm even using the term agency because he's uh, uh, the agency is called Quaker City Mercantile. But uh, Steve is uh, very decidedly uh, punk rock in his approach, and I think uh, a lot of the things that you would associate with something like a uh, a marketing or an advertising agency, he would very much bristle at being associated with any of that. So who is he? Why did we come together to talk? Well, through his work, he's created uh, a couple of uh, brands, uh, some of them you may have even heard of, uh, Fistful of Bourbon, maybe, Sailor Jerry Rum, probably, and the iconic Hendrix Gin, uh, all kind of fall under Steve's uh, umbrella. He's also been involved with the rebirth of brands like Miller High Life, Pilsner Urkel, and another one, um, what's it called? Oh yeah, Guinness. So Steve in addition to all of his work, has his own distillery. And uh, something you're going to hear him say, but it's just too good to pass up, is he said, you know, there's probably a poster on the wall, the TTB, with our pictures on it, that calls us the most annoying distillery in America uh, because we're constantly looking for ways around the rules that they have. And uh, for those of you that don't know, the TTB is the uh, government agency that oversees much of the alcohol industry. Uh, he is also the author of Brand Mysticism, Cultivate Creativity and Intoxicate Your Audience. And so we in part came together to talk about his book because he really went to the trouble to document his journey. Not so much a uh, uh, a how-to book, but how I, you know, his reflections on what got him there. And um, like I mentioned, uh, Steve's attitude is uh, very decidedly punk rock, uh, but he is also um, very enchanted by all things kind of, um, I shouldn't say all things, but um, you know, one of the things he really drives home during this is that trends are something that he feels like are a waste of time to often look at uh, when you're studying uh, a business because everybody else is looking at those exact same trends. So he's like, if you're getting all of your information off of TikTok and Instagram and following what's trending, well, then you're creative inspirations are going to come from exactly the same places as everybody else's. And you're probably going to end up creating something that's not as interesting. And so um, if at all, when I mentioned that uh, Steve had created uh, Hendrix, uh, along with the uh, the company, William Grant and Sons, that uh, if you're like, wait, Hendrix has been around for, you know, one of the things Steve talks about is that uh, you want a brand to be so complex uh, in its creation that people will look at you and be like, there's no way. How could you have created Hendrix? It's been around for 150 years. I'm sure of it. When in reality, it has not. Um, when when something is so complex, it really adds intrigue. And this is one of the other things that is really at the core of his piece is that um, magic and enchantment are these things that we value and yet are often very in short supply. And so how can brands step in in a very genuine way and create these things? 
Um, so, I mean, I, I, I wish there were other things I could do justice to. Uh, you should look up Steve's agency, uh, Quaker City Mercantile. There'll be a link to it. Uh, also, uh, he is very uh, quick in the book to point out that he's not uh, regularly on social media, yet you'll hear me many times say that he's probably never on it. That's not true. Uh, if you want, you can follow him on Instagram at Stephen Grass, G-R-A-S-S-E. Again, there'll be a link for that in there. Uh, but uh, his his level of creativity and approach is just fantastic. I think you guys are going to love what he has to say. Uh, and there'll also be a link, of course, to uh, his book as well. So with that, my conversation with Steve Grass. Stephen, thanks so much for taking some time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. You betcha, you betcha. So, I mean, uh, the first first off, what I'll say about this is I appreciated what this book wasn't in a way because uh, I am a former business guy. I'm not I'm not an MBA, but uh, I read the hell out of a lot of business books growing up. And I appreciated it really being just a reflection on that because, um, yeah, as opposed to just a how-to manual, it's how you think you've gotten to where you are. And so uh, I also appreciated the uh, the no-holds-barred tone of the book too. Well, made I, it I hate business books. I make a point of never reading business books. I even, I mentioned that in the book that I, I don't read business books. I read history books and biographies because I feel like that's a lot more to learn there. So when we, the idea of writing this book, this was my COVID project. Um, and I teamed up with Aaron Goldfarb who had done an article about how to make a booze brand go viral. It was all about Sailor Jerry. And we got along so well, I was like, um, I thought I'd contact him. And uh, he instantly said yes. And we decided to do this. And luckily, our publisher Running Press, who um, we've, uh, this is my second book with Running Press. We have a third book coming out with Running Press in, um, uh, in the May of next, I think in the spring, um, it's another cocktail book. So this one was, a, a, I think, a, a gamble for running press to do a, a non-cocktail book with me. And um, I'm glad they took the chance. Yeah. So a, a thing, I guess a place, there are so many places to start based on everything you wrote, but there was a, a passage that I, I loved. I kind of wanted to read for people and kind of turn you loose, hopefully from there. Uh, which, by the way, uh, I'll preface with uh, the book you reference here. I went out and bought immediately. So uh, you talk about As If by Michael Saylor. And you yeah. say, you say the basic gist is that in enlightenment, the Enlightenment and later Industrial Revolution killed the magic and enchantment in the world. It turns yeah. out that these two things are necessary for the human experience. We yearn for them. We strive for them. We need them. But you go on to talk about that. The Enlightenment and Revolution really—they um, killed God, and so they took away a lot of the mysticism. And this seems like such a core tenet when you're talking about Jules Verne and Zeppelin that there is this whole mysticism here. And so, one, I loved this enchantment and uh, enchantment piece that you created. Um, but for people out there that haven't read the book yet. How do you begin to tackle this? Because obviously you spent 200 pages or 180 pages uh, talking about it here. So uh, I, anyways, I loved that passage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting because the book kind of rambles to and fro, but that's really the gist of the core idea in the book is, is that um, enchantment and mysticism were destroyed by the enlightenment which is is pretty a pretty radical view but I, I would also venture to say that uh the enlightenment also killed the planet with global warming but we we promised we weren't going to talk about politics but that's not really politics. <laughs> um so i i feel like it's interesting because i i um uh I, I guess at the core of it i'm a very spiritual person and i feel that uh uh science 
we, we've become very rational, okay? And when mm -hmm. we're rational, we kill a lot of possibility and a lot of nuance. Um, and and the, the stuff that makes um, that makes up good stories. So, you know, I, I, I hate using the term marketer or advertising person because I, I, there's a, I think there's a great book I read once. It said, don't tell my mother I work in advertising. She thinks I play piano in a whorehouse. <laughs> um, which I thought was funny because I, like, I have massive contempts for the advertising industry and marketing. Um, but I'm at the heart of it. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I hate the word storyteller too, because it's become so overused, right. but right. I, I, if you look at what makes a story stick, it's the, the depth of the level of, of the nuance in the storytelling. And, uh, the, the book you read, you're talking about as if, um, which is, you know, it's funny. Uh, did you actually buy the book? As oh yeah. If? Oh yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's in route. It's, oh, okay. It's, it's really, a, it's a, it's a brilliant book, but it's a tough read. I think it's like Oxford university press or something and it's <laughs> deeply intellectual, but, but the basic gist of it is that when the industrial revolution killed God and killed magic and enchantment in the world, that uh, people started creating it for themselves. And the first creator of this was probably um, Jules Verne um, when he created, you know, the book's all about like like the first forays into virtual reality, but virtual reality in the context of this was, you know, Verne would create maps and uh, yeah. a whole uh, language and and then, and then obviously, you know, um, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes was an example of this. And then later on, Tolkien and um, Lovecraft. And the idea that when um, the stories of, you know, lore and magic and mystical qualities um, are no longer in our culture, we create them. And, mm -hmm. and those ideas are what I've used to build the brand's that I've become quite known for, especially in particular, I would say the best example of that is Hendrix gin. Right. Um, and, and, you know, at, at the heart of it too, it's, it's what makes star Wars work. It would, it's what makes, you know, all the, you know, the Marvel, all that crap, but it's like, um, at it, the heart of it, that that's what we're doing is we're recreating myths and mythologies and, and mystical qualities uh, because they've been destroyed by, you know, mass culture and, and the enlightenment, which is, is, is puts uh, the rational before the mystical. So. Yeah. And yeah, uh, some it's some deep shit, you know, it's, it's really interesting because you think like, Oh, it's a book on how to create a brand. No, it's not. It's really a book on, uh, on how to create new worlds and, um, and, uh, and why it's important too. It's not just, I want to create a brand and make a billion dollars. It's like, um, it, it's a, it's a guidebook for your whole life because these mystical and enchantment qualities are so important to your overall being, not just to, uh, your career. Yeah. And, uh, I, um, I definitely, you know, think you, you, you raise that well with terms like, Oh, I think about new brand brands as like a garage band, or, uh, you talked about it in terms of like, like this is very cult-like in in a very healthy way right it's it's moving to an interesting fringe as opposed to the boring middle and all that resonates with me uh from uh marketer who shirks the term advertising uh seth godin talks about that a lot too in terms of cultivating you know kind of uh a tribe a cult finding the people who uh are following a very specific and another thing that i love too is you know, I, I like to say it's like, you know, one day the, you know, the Instagram reels and all this, and I know you're a huge fan of social media are, you know, <laughs> they're all going to be, you know, they're, they're, everything's getting faster. And your response has been, let's go deeper, you know, like creating yeah. for Hendrix this, if I may, unnecessary field book that's like 80 pages long or whatever, that is detailing out all the intricacies of uh, of everything going on there. And I think it's so counterintuitive that we yearn for this depth, but we do. It's just, there's all this pressure 
uh, to go faster right now. We all want to keep up with the trend of faster. Yeah, bigger, better, faster, more. Or what's the Who album? Meaty, beady, big, and bouncy. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if my approach works for everything. Like, I don't know if it works mm -hmm. for Tide for Tide laundry detergent. Sure. But I think it would. Why wouldn't it? Um, but I think for high engagement products like alcohol, where it's you know that the stories of how it's categories with really interesting backstories or, or, you know, the, the whole idea that, you know, alcohol was created by the alchemists, um, you know, thousands of years ago. It's, it's like, you're just starting from this point of like, of depth and intrigue. And it's just really fun when you create it. It's interesting. I, I, before I worked in the spirits industry, I worked in the tobacco industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I, I thought what was really interesting about the tobacco industry is how the, it destroyed itself and how tobacco, which, you know, it's now regulated and it should be. But right. back in the day when I did it, it wasn't. And there were things like, you know, there are more different kinds of tobacco plants than there are grapes, mm -hmm. right? And yet mm -hmm. the tobacco industry destroyed itself by selling itself as a commodity as right. opposed to talking about the nuance of the different types of tobacco and the um, experience of, you know, flavor and, and things like that. And what, what was interesting about, um, you know, I created Sailor Jerry rum as a hobby um, and that hobby ended up, you know, becoming this massive brand that we sold Um but I, I thought what was great about the spirits industry is I liked that it had it had those stories and that depth of authenticity and meaning, but they hadn't destroyed it. It hadn't destroyed itself. Well, I guess it probably did during the during the um, uh, what do you call it uh, prohibition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it yes. had already been regulation, right? So I guess long story short is alcohol is a great category to work in because people don't hate you for it. Um, and there's a lot of brand loyalty. Like we always say, like, if you, if you do it right, if you create a great spirits brand, it'll go for a hundred years. Sure. Um, and so the, going back to what you were saying about, you know, I talk a lot about bands in the book and um, it, it's interesting because I, my background, it's, it's, and, and the reason in the book we go through this whole like meandering um, the start of the company and how we grew and then eventually ended up in the Spears businesses is, um, is a very informal garage punk kind of background that we didn't know what we were doing. I never worked for a big agency. Um, we just started this thing and we we always based it on the idea that I was just always intrigued when I was, a, you know, when I was growing up, like you would like write the name of your favorite, but you you'd write Metallica on your notebook mm -hmm. and you would carve it into your you know locker or whatever, but you never do that with brands. Right. So what, what makes a band so sticky and so, you know, why are people so passionate about that? Um, and so we, we've always really built our, our brands thinking like the way a band would would create and if you think about like um I, a big influence of mine has always been malcolm mclaren who was the uh mm -hmm. I, I guess you know he's he created the sex pistols bow wow wow adam and the ants um but he was the, the you know the maestro behind the, this uh behind those bands he kind of really created the visual idea and and um but the thing about bands that's really interesting is and this is a big theme in the book is bands don't create albums with focus groups. Maybe they do these days, but the bands I like don't create albums based on focus groups. They, be, they create them based on passion points or things that are interesting to them. Right. And what they do that's really exciting is they kind of smush these ideas together in a really like what seems to be a nonsensical, incoherent way, but 
it's like a, a crazy chef who's putting these crazy ingredients together, but yet he, after he puts it in the oven, it comes out and it's like delicious. So uh, I talk a lot in the book about Led Zeppelin and, yeah, and you know, like yeah, how yeah. And on one hand they're into like, um, you know, they mix Mississippi blues with uh, Tolkien, right? Yep. Makes no fucking sense, but it's like, um, but it's brilliant, right? And that's the way we've always looked at, at our brands is, is um, we create in this sort of illogical stream of consciousness way that's influenced by, because again, I, the other thing we talk a lot about in the book is like, like just turn off the social media and read old books, read long books, read them entirely. Don't mm-hmm. skip, go through because that's where the ideas are that nobody else has tapped. Right, that's where your ideas are, and it's it's about how you put things, how you make connections between different ideas that you have. And if the only ideas you have are from Instagram Reels or TikTok, that's the extent or the depth of the idea, or that's all you're going to come up with. But if you you've been, you know, I, I'm just finishing up um, War and Peace. Okay, um, and. I also have just started reading this great book about the little ice age that started from 17, no, 1590 to 1680. Okay. All about how, you know, um, for some, they don't get into the reason why the climate changed and became like, um, you know, like literal an ice age for a hundred years. They don't get into why, but they get into the impact it had on everything. Like a great fact was, uh, you know, people always drank wine before this. You had to drink wine. You couldn't drink water because it would kill you, but they drank wine. But during the mini ice age, all the vines died, all of them. So that's when people really started drinking beer. Mm. Fascinating. I wouldn't know. I hadn't read this book. So that's the way we create. It's a very unique process. And in the book, we kind of break it down how we do it. Um, but my process is not going to be yours or my interests aren't going to be yours, but out of the process comes things that are genuinely unique and are not like riffing off a current trend. Instead, they're, they're like really weird. Like Hendrix was the weirdest thing that ever, you know, had ever happened in the gin category when we came up with it, I think what, 24 years ago, nothing was ever like it. And that's why you know, 24 years later, it's like, um, I think we're the third biggest gin in the, in the world. And, uh, and just, we're growing double digits every year for the last 24 years, because it's, it's truly unique and different. And, and, uh, you know, went on to redefine the whole category. You know, and you talk about, um, you know, just that before Hendrix, as an example, that like, hey, people might have drank Beef Eater or Tangeray and liked it, but nobody really talked about it this way. And I think, you know, that's this pursuit of scale and the middle you come back to where you're talking about at one point the uh, the little uh, street concerts that you would have for Sailor Jerry. And I think you had the example of like, you know, we can't even if she wanted to come. We can't invite Taylor Swift. That's a huge impression for us. It's going to, I mean, you will be everywhere, but that is diluting the brand. And I think you spend time talking about that in terms of people either never establish that depth or, you know, what's it? Use the example of like, oh, that Starbucks is a Moby Dick reference. And then you go, did anybody know that? I didn't know that. So yeah, yeah. I think brands, it's, you, you go on to say like, hey, like, I mean, you always need to get weirder and more in depth. And and obviously maybe that doesn't apply for everything, but I, I appreciated it because it feels like it's all about faster, more impressions, what's on trend, as opposed to how do you stay true to yourself um, once you kind of really establish that pa- those passion points that you referenced like with like well, Zeppelin. And what's interesting is, um, again, in the spirits category, you tend to have a little more time to do that sort of thing mm-hmm. like if i'm selling bars of soap um you know or if i've got some vc who wants his investment back you've got to go a little faster however i think it's really important to know that when you're creating a brand if you don't bake these things into the brand your success will be fleeting so mm-hmm. it's the idea that 
uh, we always call, we call it in, in the, uh, it's called, we call it our onion method. And the idea with the onion is that there's layers of meaning. And with a lot of brands, if you go scratch the surface, there's not much underneath the surface. But with our brands, the more layers you unpeel, the more interesting it gets, not less interesting it gets. And, and those things that you're like, well, yeah, does it matter? Do you really have to do all this to go to this extent? It's like, you know, you have to do it for, for the super fans. You also have to do it for the people that you've paid to help create this stuff with you because they lose interest otherwise. Everyone loses interest unless you keep the story fresh. And, you know, who does it well? Disney, Disney, Star Wars. You know, it's like um, Marvel, like, although I, I hate those things. But, um, <laughs> you know, you know, and it's another really good reference we always talk about is um, The Simpsons. Yep, yep. And what's interesting about The Simpsons, though, with Hendrix, we've created hundreds of characters over the years, like Birdman, all these like crazy characters. And we have names for all of them. We know what they, that we have profiles for all of them. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very similar to like with the Simpsons, you know, over the, the longevity of the brand and, and is, is the, the, the full realization of Springfield and the backstories and the, you know, it's, it's just, it's just goes to an illogical extent. And that's to bring up your first point over talking about with like Jules Verne was the first to do that. And it's interesting because Jules Verne was the inspiration for Hendrix for me. Um, and just give an idea of like what the stream of consciousness that we go through when we create, you know, the story with Hendrix is, um, uh, you know, okay. So, Back in the day, our company is called Gyro. Now it's called Quaker City Mercantile. But Gyro, our biggest client was R.J. Reynolds Tobacco. It dominated everything we did. And then we had two other clients. We had um, uh, Puma sneakers globally. Mm -hmm. and, but back in the day when we first started working with Puma, they were a $30 million brand. We ended our ten tenure with them when they sold it to Gucci for $7 billion. Um, and then our other client was William Grant and Sons, and which makes Glenfiddich. And our first job for them was to do a U.S. campaign for Glenfiddich whiskey. And they asked us, you know, we don't have a gin or a rum in our portfolio. Can you help us create something? So we came back to them uh, with two ideas. One was Hendrix Gin, um, and the other one was Sailor Jerry Rum. So I had started a clothing company called Sailor Jerry because uh, somebody who worked for me was this like heavy tattoo, heavily tattooed guy who, you know, always talked about Sailor Jerry. And so we researched it, found his, the, uh, you know, we, we bought, ended up buying the Sailor Jerry estate for I think $10,000, which basically was his name and his uh, artwork. Um, but regarding going back to the gin, when we did, you know, I, I didn't know anything about gin. Um, Sir Charles Gordon Grant, who was the, you know, the, not the founder of William Grant Sons, but he was the, you know, the guy who ran it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I went to Scotland with him. He wanted me to see his gin palace. And I thought gin palace, well, I, I had visions of like a palace that made gin but we went to Girvan, Scotland, and it was literally a garage with these two ancient stills, a Carter and a Bennett still. Um, and they were, they were from the 1840s. At least one of them was. Um, and I just thought to myself instantly, like, oh, wow, look, that looks like Jules Verne, like Captain Nemo stuff, right? And, and then when we started talking about how gin was made and the gin basket and how you could put different botanicals in it. I just got this sense of Victorian apothecary. And so I sent my assistant, uh, Rona to the, uh, to, you know, antique stores and she found a old poison bottle. Um, and we just blew that up to a 750 ml size and that's the Hendrix bottle. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it was, and then the, the the brand world we created was the uh, 
kind of felt like Monty Python cutouts. And that was, you know, economic reasons. There was no budget and, and also feeding into the Victorian apothecary and the Jules Verne vibe. So it's this whole stream of consciousness that it's like, it's also like the big bang theory. Cause the way we come up with brands is everything happens all at once. Um, the, the bottle, the brand world, the, uh, the idea for everything sort of occurs all at once and it kind of all fits together. And I, it took me years to realize that's not the way most agencies or, or companies work. Uh, Cause we would, you know, if we worked for somebody other than grants and they would ask us to create something, we would say, well, they, they would say, okay, you do this part. Then we're going to have a packaging agency do this part. And then we're going to hand it over to a marketing agency. We're like, no, no, we do it. We do the whole thing or we don't do it at all. And there was always like, well, what do you mean you do the whole thing? I'm like, well, how do you not do the whole thing? Like, it's all one idea. Um, and I, I guess it, you know, I don't know. So, man, I'm talking a lot. Go ahead. <laughs> that's, that's, that's why this conversation is happening to hear, to, to, <laughs> to, to, to mine your brain a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, so, I mean, maybe, uh, your how-to, your playbook isn't necessarily my playbook in this yeah. world. Uh, but so I really have started to like, you know, I have like it written down upstairs right now. If I was a garage band, you know, what would I be? Yeah. And, you know, you talk incessantly and part of this is the old books in terms of just general interest, but also like, you're like, if you're not cultivating curiosity, you know, you're, 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 you're sunk, but are there, you know, part of it's probably practice, but if you're kind of at the starting line of trying to envision yourself as a garage band or whatever, are there any suggestions of what to do, what to avoid? I mean, you have the steps in the book, but I guess I'm just curious if there's any general field advice you've had for people out there running their bar, running their brand, et cetera. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, keep going back to the band analogy, like what's your why would anyone care? Um, what are you about? What, why is it interesting to, you know, like, um, um, why is it interesting? Uh, so I think perspective, and that's why, again, going back to the, um, you know, not just reading old books, but, but having an idea of, of what interests you of cultivating curiosity. So, um, you don't need to have a, th like, if you have a theme that's so obvious, and maybe it's too obvious. Um, like, I, I think, again, the bands that work really well are, are when it's like a, um, a not a mishmash, but like a, a, a mashup of, of different ideas that somehow becomes this coherent thought that only you could have had. Okay, so uh, I mean, look at look at the, the Misfits band, the Misfits, right? So um, I mean, they're kind of inspired by like, you know, it's punk, but it's also fifties, um, but it's it's also like horror movies. So how does that make any sense? But yet it becomes this very clear idea um, after you've put out enough expressions of that idea, if you've put out enough layers of the onion the misfits couldn't be anything else but the misfits. Does that make sense? You know, it does. I mean, I, you know, I started my little venture around this idea of teaching my friends how to make drinks. And that's, that's great. And cocktails, I think should be a little bit more like cooking to the average person. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, th I think you, you, you get a little uh, comfort creating things. I think also like I love, the arc that the chef Dan Barber put, which is like the strike against vodka and so many things, which is, you know, uh, you know, that he talks about that in food, the pursuit of things should be flavor, you know? Uh, and so I think that, you know, uh, when people are one, people should drink whatever they like. Uh, but I think it's like, Oh, once you taste a rich, flavorful spirit, uh, or you taste a rich, flavorful cocktail, the idea of consuming, 
six of something that has no flavor. But anyways, I, I feel like I'm still looking for that third or fourth piece of the Venn diagram in terms of why me, because everybody uh, I had. So I work uh, on the side in the industry still right now. And uh, so I was having a post shift drink last night and I had some uh, fistful of bourbon. So, uh, cause, but uh, that was my first one. Very, very nicely done. Uh, but I was on your guys' website and I was like, no, damn easy cocktails. Cool. But it's like, okay, there's a big push for simplicity right now. So where does yeah. that leave me in terms of what makes somebody want to come see my band when a lot of people are talking about easy cocktails right now? So yeah, this is just where my own thinking is in terms of my additional edge. All right. So let's talk about mixology and and um and all that. So first of all, I'm not a mixologist. Sure. I make the worst drinks in the world, which is really funny. People always like, like with um, <laughs> in a, in a place, people are like, Oh, you make me a drink. I'm like, dude, I can't. It's funny. Since I opened my own distillery, I drink everything straight. Sure. Cause I, I want to enjoy the spirit, but okay. You said an interesting point. So why cocktails? It's, it's cooking. It's a culinary uh, adventure. I, I laugh when you've got these cocktail snobs. You're like, well, you know, classic recipes have to be done exactly to this. And like, do they like riff on it? But I also feel like, like there's so much you can do with mixology, the way we're trying to do things with our spirits. Like we made our, we have this crazy line of spirits we're doing in New Hampshire called House of Tamworth, where we, we just made, it went like crazy viral, the, um, crab trapper whiskey which was made with the uh invasive green crabs um and i mean you know it's funny i i think there probably is a poster on the wall of the ttb um with our pictures on it being the most annoying distillery in america because we're constantly pushing them to give us a waiver or get around you know restrictions because we're always looking for new ingredients so i feel like with the mixology world it's like there's no reason why you can't brand yourself and and be really adventuresome with with what you're doing i mean i quite frankly i find cocktail books i'm like i'm just so shocked people buy them sure it's like yep. how many ways can you and it's funny because our la latest cocktail book the cocktail workshop from martin Leach, it literally fits that mold of like uh you know here's three different variations on the old fashioned. Um, but I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's ripe to, to really go into a, a new direction. I, I don't know what that direction is because I'm not, I'm not necessarily focused on it at this moment, but I would approach it the same way. I, I think people like, um, I, we always say with, when we create a brand, there's three ingredients. And they all have to have. They all have to happen at once, and they all they're all very interconnected. And they seem obvious, but it's like, first of all, you need a great liquid. And when I say it, when I say a great liquid, I mean a differentiated liquid. Mm -hmm. So if you're just going to come out with another another whiskey, like why bother? What 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 are you doing that is is unique? So with Hendrix, for instance, the rose and cucumber thing was was truly differentiated. With Sailor Jerry. Um, you know, it was the first high proof spiced rum. So it was like basic, it was simple for a buck more, you get 92 proof, right? Um, so great, great li differentiated liquid, great packaging, which again, it seems pretty obvious, but the packaging and the, and then the third one is a great story. And the story and the packaging, the liquid, the packaging is the expression. It's, it's the nucleus. It's the, it's the, um, the, the, the very heart of what the, the entire brand is. If you put Hendrix bottle in the middle of the Hendrix universe, it is literally the, 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 the sun or the, or the, it's the nucleus of what, around which everything revolves. And they all need to be interconnected. And, um, and again, most brands don't think, most marketers don't think that way. They, they, uh, parcel it out to, to various different firms. We turned down this massive project, which I won't tell you who it was or what the product was, but we turned it down because 
the packaging had already been done. And they said, you can do everything else. I'm like, I, I can't. And they're like, um, do you realize what you're turning down? I'm like, I, I, sorry, but we just have to. I just can't. I don't like what you've done with the packaging and I don't know how I can make that work. Um, because it, it needs to, it, it's all interconnected. Uh, and then again, you know, I don't know why you couldn't do that with, with mixology and cocktails. And I don't think enough people are really pushing it far enough in that way, I would imagine. I, you know, it's interesting. I've been seeing some of these thematic bars popping up that are, are um, I, I don't know, the cocktail experience where they're trying to build in the storytelling with it. I can't give you specific examples off the top of my head, but um, it's interesting. But we've been to one of these things and, and the storytelling was terrible and the cocktails were even worse. But I thought it was an interesting idea of trying to bring, create a universe around the cocktail experience. But what I've seen in this area has been pretty cheesy. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think anyone's really figured it out yet. But yeah, I, I, I um, yeah, one, I think, you know, with cocktails being, you know, 10, 20 years behind cooking, we see a, a big thirst for them. We also see plenty yeah. of uh, bad cocktails or bad experimentation. You know, people just yeah. are trying crazy things. And so hopefully it gets reined in a little bit. But yeah, I guess to your point, as I use this for my own little workshopping of my own brand, like when I'm in person teaching people, there is a level of passion, enthusiasm, you can do this attitude that comes out that I think is not conveyed as well through the packaging and the brand story. So I don't, I, I, yes. have, I have struggled with how to synthesize the, the experience people have into a broader brand. And I have not put the investment capital into that yet mm -hmm. in, in terms of really bringing that to life. So that well, there's an interesting point I bring up in the book, which I, I would imagine is, you know, not everyone's going to agree with, but I, I don't think taste is subjective. Good taste. I, I think that, um, you know, if you look into, uh, you know, mystical properties of sacred geometry and, and, you know, the golden ratio and all that stuff, like, you can't really, because um, sometimes you hear like, well, the beauty's in the eye, eye of the beholder. It's like, no, I'm sorry, it's not. Like there is an aesthetic quality uh, that I would, I think also extends to, you know, flavor as well. So there's good examples and bad examples of fashion, architecture, design, and bad examples are just bad examples. So I think a lot of like, you know, if you say like somebody has enthusiasm and, and is creating, yeah, but is it any good? And right. I think you can, you can judge it. Um, you can't just say, well, everyone to each their own, like, no, no, sorry. It doesn't work that way. If, if you have put a lot of enthusiasm into something, but it's still bad, it's bad because you're, you haven't done your homework or you haven't done uh, brought up your level of skill where you actually understand what is aesthetically working or, or, you know, working on a culinary level. Um, and, and when something hits all the notes in the right way, uh, it's usually rewarded because it finds an audience because it, it naturally, it's like when a beautiful face or whatever, it, it, no one denies it because it's just like, it's just, it just is. And it finds its audience. Yeah. I did appreciate you talking about uh, what you've, and again, uh, your personal outlook on what makes great packaging, but you talked about, Oh, like, you know, this is what makes Sailor Jerry's, you know, because like, I think you used a punk rock example. You said, uh, you know, into your world, it's like punk rock, you know, and that was the Malcolm McLaren quote was yeah. uh, punk made uh, ugly, beautiful, right? 
Yes. Uh, but you talked about that uh, some, th- some things are just bad versus Sailor Jerry was a little bit like bad on- On purpose. On purpose, yes. Yeah, yes. We, we always say we make things ugly on purpose. And what we mean by that is, and it's funny because um, I think I rip on British design in the book. <laughs> yep, yep. And what I, I don't mean to rip on British people, although I, I wrote a whole other book about the British- people called evil empire um (laughs) but what i mean is that when you make something trendy it's instantly outdated the moment it comes out whereas if you make something that's authentic to what you're trying to create or authentic to the story then it transcends time and transcends uh all trends and then so something like hendrix gin you know, I've had people argue with me that there's no way you created that. It's been around for a hundred, you know, since 1887. And I'm like, oh, then we did a good job because there's no way, you know, like, um, you know, in the original Sailor Jerry bottle, it's it's changed a bit. But the original Sailor Jerry bottle was designed to look like it sat on your grandfather's, you know, man cave in the basement in 1973. I mean, that was the point. And and if you do your brand, like Narragansett beer, great, ugly, on-purpose brand, right? Because it feels like it's working-class Rhode Island, and that's what it is. And so a lot of British design is is trying to win. This is why we also rail on award shows in the book, because I feel like when you create design for award shows, you're creating for your peers as opposed to serving the product or the project that you're trying to create. Same is true with the uh, Spirits Award shows. We're not big fans. I'm not, we don't enter them. Because I'm like, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's an ty- entire waste of resources and time. And, and I feel like, let the people decide. Just put it out there and see if it, see if it works. And, um, and so we, we don't enter those, uh, you know, although, you know, more power to you if you do, but I feel like there's better ways to, um, you know, the reason Sailor Jerry exists is when we, when our biggest client was R.J. Reynolds Tobacco, they paid us in monopoly money, meaning that it was just like ridiculous. We were like, uh, you know, in our twenties and just like getting paid with like mountains of cash, but we couldn't enter our work in the advertising award shows because nobody wanted to know us. We were pariahs. Mm. So we said, let's take that money and let's create stuff. Let's make our own stuff. So one of the things we made was Sailor Jerry clothing company. Another thing we made was a um, uh, film series called Bikini Bandits. And then a third thing we made was a, a convenience store, which was like a, um, it was a fake convenience store called Gmart. <clears throat> and Gmart was like this, uh, you know, we, all the, it was like an art project. It was a pop-up similar to the Prada store in Marfa, Texas, but we were first. Mm-hmm. Or what's the other one? The time travel store um, McSweeney's has. Yeah. Is that who had? We were, we, we beat them out by 10 years. Right. So, um, uh, so we did those projects with our with our monopoly money, and one of them blew up massively, right? Um, but got news on Bikini Bandits. We we signed a, a deal with a major Hollywood production house, and it looks like that's um, hopefully getting made into a docu series. So, um, but uh, but so I, I always feel too like I never give up on. I have a whole catalog of ideas and brands. We very well chronicle everything we do. We keep our trademarks intact. And if something dies, it it will be reborn in another form. Because we just like we you know what why why not just it's intellectual property you created. Just find find a way to find a way to make it work, if not now and at some point. So Yeah, G Mart sounded like quite a trip. So uh, that's uh that's it's pretty cool. Um so uh, knowing that we have just a little bit more time left for just like knowing that it's obviously still fringe and cultish, but to this slightly different take on uh, making ugly beautiful, 
You also talk towards the end of the book about uh, Hermes quite a bit in terms of the yeah. brand that they, so I, I'd love just since people can think about that as like obviously ultra high-end luxury, do you yeah. mind talking for a minute about what you admire about how they've built their brand so people can think about it more from like a, a luxury end of things where you've said your mind kind of is right now? Well, okay. So with the distillery in New Hampshire, um, what we're doing in a very audacious experiment is uh, instead of creating volume, mass volume, and trying to be in all 50 states, we're creating uh, extremely handcrafted, rare, uh, exquisite. Um, we, we make 55 different products up there and um, all of them in very small batches and they come out when they come out. So for instance, we make a, a blackberry trumpet, Black Trumpet Mushroom Blueberry Liqueur. Um, and we only make it when it's blueberry season and Black black Trumpet Mushroom season. Um, we make, uh, you know, like uh, we make seasonal, an apiary gin. Um, and it only comes out when the uh, spruce tips are in season. Um, and we're, selling our whiskeys, even though they're only uh, that the oldest we have is seven years old. We make everything from scratch there too. Um, Miller on grain, all the, you know, it's all the, all the tropes about craft distilling, but we actually do it for real. I think we make all of our own neutral grain spirit. We make everything from scratch. And um, you know, our, our whiskey program is, is uh, our old man of the mountain whiskey is, is I think easily one of the best bourbons in the country. Um, although we don't know because we don't enter award shows, um, but we 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 I wouldn't say we get away with selling it for a, a super premium, but we're we're selling our whiskeys. Sometimes the bottles go for a hundred, two hundred fifty dollars. Um, so the goal isn't to expand and get venture capital money and to become the next you know Diageo. The goal is to is to have this really brilliant gem that grows exponential that grows you know step by step the proper way we we just bought another 105 acres up there because we maxed out the current distillery and we're about to build a another um on that 105 acres we're about to uh to build a, a another um continuous still and uh and then we have a whole like composting program we have a whole um you know, it's very sustainable. All that, all that stuff. Um, it, so that that's the goal. The goal is to to not make. What I mean by Hermes is like I don't want to be the biggest distillery in the world. I want to be the best, mm -hmm. and I want it to grow for generations. My daughter, who's twenty one, graduates from St. John's College in Annapolis, and um, she her goal is to to take over the business. She wants to go to Scotland when she graduates and uh, work in a, in a uh, whiskey distillery so she can bring the, you know, learn what they have to learn and bring it home. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's how we want to emulate Hermes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Controlling a small little corner of the market by being to your the point best. the whole time, like, yeah, the best in your own little corner of the world. Yeah. 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 And not necessarily, you know, it's interesting too because um, we have a lot of great clients, and it's interesting that the the biggest companies are all still family owned. Like Gallo is a client of ours, and Ernest Gallo Jr. Um, has become a good friend of mine, and he uh, he came to the distillery, and he said that the mistake most craft distillers make is they expand their distribution too fast. And he said, um, you know don't make that mistake. And it's interesting because we had tried expanding to New York, Boston, right from the get-go. And we had plans to go, you know, get listed and it really made us pause and rethink like, no, we should own the state of New Hampshire. And once we own the state of New Hampshire, which we do, we do now, once we own the state of New Hampshire, we will selectively grow from there. And, um, and I think I'm inspired again through history and learning 
of generational family businesses that that's why I love the whiskey, uh, uh, the distilling business. It's the only one of the few businesses out there that still run that way, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it's really a, a noble, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I know we didn't talk, we weren't going to talk about politics, but there's a reason we're in New Hampshire with a distillery. One is water. Um, we, we have, we're sitting on top of the best aquifer on the entire East coast. Two is um, my family's from New Hampshire, going back to 1637. They were one of the first um, settlers there. And uh, three, um, live free or die, motherfucker. Uh, I'm pretty hardcore libertarian. Um, and I just love that, uh, you know, so I'm not anti-capitalist. I am anti-enlightenment, I have to say. I feel that capitalism like is cancer and that growing for the sake of growth is a tumor on the world. And what you need to do is not just sustain, but, but create beauty and create uh, enchantment and, and joy in the world. And that's the goal. And I realized like, I know a lot of us are just trying to get by and it's, some rich dude telling you to create beauty is like, fuck you. But no, what it means is make conscious choices and make, choose beauty, choose, choose, choose uh, to make things in the world that you're proud of and that you can, you know, pass it down to your kids and say, look what I made. You know, I don't know. It's uh, it, it has been more of my own uh, uh, awakening to kind of stepping away from what does the research say and like this whole progression towards scale. And so, yeah, like uh, part of the reason the book resonated with me is recognizing that there was a big part of that piece of me for a long time that did exist. And this idea of, yeah, doing beautiful things for people you care about that you enjoy sure sounds like a whole lot more fun than just uh biding your time you know getting along with everybody um yeah like finding something that kind of gets you riled up makes sense and you know i guess uh one of my like other takeaways that has kind of come to better fruition as i think about what am i trying to do i remember you used this line when you were talking we were working with guinness you said what was it you guys need to become brewers again, not just marketers? And how often are we all just like retrumpeting the brand as opposed to like falling back into the craft? Um, that kind of well, again, that that goes to that that you know, Guinness is a great example of uh, that. Yeah, we I remember when we told them you need to become brewers again, not marketers. They were kind of gobsmacked at the beginning. What do you mean? We make the best commercials in the world. I'm like, yeah, you do. But you also make the original craft beer and you have such a storied history and you make great liquid. You need to talk about all of it. And we need to get people thinking about that again. And that's why we built the Open Gate Brewery in Dublin first. And then we built a bigger one in um, in Maryland. And uh, And our work with Guinness is going on seven years now. And um, hey, their sales are up double digits every year since we started with them. So it's, um, yeah. So I feel like in everything you do, like, you know, and I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know what, we work with big companies and their job is shareholders and scale. We get that. And, um, and I, I, there's a famous artist that I worked with years ago named Doug Aiken. And um, he, he had, he had a, uh, we worked on a video for him with him for MTV and he came in and he had two portfolios. One was called bread and one was called butter. And the bread portfolio was work he did for money. And the butter portfolio was work he did for art. And I, that always stuck with me. And I always feel like, you know, um, you need to have bread and butter. And if you, 
do it right, eventually the butter pays for everything. But you got to keep an eye, like they, they, bread and butter needs to intersect as a Venn diagram. And sometimes, you know, it's also weird too. Like uh, here's the guy telling you to create beauty and yet I, I sold cigarettes for 20 years, right? Um, yet if I hadn't done that, I, I wouldn't be in a position where I could do what I'm doing now. So I don't know. And again, like I, I always thought, you know, as a student of American history and I always thought tobacco was a cool category, but they fucked it up royally themselves. But anyway, enough about that. Well, yeah, but I think, you know, you, you certainly showed that you brought some edginess to it as well. What was it? The red camel line was red uh, camel. Yeah, it's yeah. like ba back because only because it tastes good, which is like, yeah, it's uh, it, 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 it's fun stuff there. Um, you know, wait, wait, I'm going to tell you. Right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. My, my wife is nine years younger than me. And when we first met, she was like, oh, my God, you did those red camel ads. They were all over my college dorm along with diesel ads. And I was like, oh, that's so great. I mean, it's great. It was terrible, but it's great. Cause it was kind of like, oh, we were one of those. And when we created Red Camel, back when magazines were, were still a big deal, I remember I said, I want our brand to sit, have as much buzz and sit at the front of the magazine of interview or paper right there with diesel. And I'm trying to think what other big brands were, but diesel was the brand I was trying to catch. And, um, and I think we did. So there you go. It's uh, you certainly you made it into. You were the uh, Metallica poster. She was hanging on her. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and having points with her sounds like a probably a pretty good idea. Um, so I know you spend a ton of time on social, but uh, for people out there, one the book Brand Mysticism is obviously coming out. But uh, in terms of keeping up with your work, Stephen, as well as the book, anything you want people to. Uh, any places they should look to find that? Uh, what do you want to share before we sign off? Okay, a couple of things. So I am on social media. I just don't obsess over it. Fair so enough. you can actually follow me. I'm, uh, I think it's my name, Steve Grass. Um, mm -hmm. But I was going to say, um, so the book, we launched a whiskey uh, based on teachings from the book. And the brand is called Dunce. Dunce Whiskey is just launching. And a Dunce Whiskey is genius because in the book we talk about how all these bourbon brands have fake stories um what's the one templeton is the most notorious yep. yep so uh there's a graphic in the book with a dunce cap floating over a whiskey glass and um i just thought that, that would be such a great brand so we created dunce to troll the whiskey industry but then we found out this amazing story about the origins of the dunce cap and the origins of the Dunn's cap were there was this guy, John Dunn's in the 13th century um, who at the, when he lived was the considered the smartest man alive. And he wore a conical hat um, that he believed brought uh, trans trans uh, brought the energy from the divine energy from the heavens into his skull through the point pyramid power, conical power. And um, he had a, a group of followers called Dunsman. And the Pope got jealous of John Duns because everyone thought he was smarter than the Pope. So what did the Pope do? He buried him alive. Um, and the Pope started a campaign to make the Duns cap um, or to, to make John Duns, you know, a symbol of stupidity as opposed to the smartest man in the world. So over the centuries, the dunce cap became a symbol of stupidity. So we thought it'd be really great or fun to call the brand dunce, but then also use giant dunce caps, cones, and we put them over the whiskey barrels and to see if it would actually help the taste of the whiskey. And um, uh, you be the judge. It's amazing. So uh, our point is that if you believe that Templeton rye was actually drunk by Al Capone, why wouldn't you believe that a giant dunce cap resting on a whiskey barrel would transform the taste of a whiskey? So that's the point. And uh, dunce whiskey is actually available on sealbach.com. Um, but you can also buy it at the distillery. 
in Tamworth, and you can also buy it at Art in the Age in Philadelphia, which is our our bottle shop and uh, cocktail bar. Um, and uh, and you can follow Dunce Whiskey on Instagram. And there's a great we did a great documentary on on um, John Dunn's and the and the giant uh, Dunce caps, which we did for real. We really did do the Dunce caps, rested them on the uh, whiskey barrels, and um, I don't know. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I, I believe you did it based on everything else I've read. Uh, I, 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 I trust in that for sure. But that's a great mystical story, right? Come on, <laughs> Dunce, Dunce whiskey. And it's a great call, right? And what we're doing is we're giving away giant, oh, we're giving away Dunce caps with every bottle and uh, every bar that we sell it into all the bartenders are going to get Dunce caps. So um, I don't know. Love it. Closing with a good story. Um, yeah, Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. This was a lot of fun. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for uh thanks for inviting me. You betcha. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter or give us a follow on instagram at decoding cocktails if you think this podcast is great stuff we'd love it if you'd subscribe or of course share an episode with a friend the decoding cocktails podcast is produced by chris bay and myself thanks for listening we'll see you again soon and happy cocktailing